spoken maybe. I haven't thought about flying for a long time. I have a dream that moment when I was alone above the clouds for a long time. I have dreamed waking up in a room surrounded in blue and green grass for more years than I could dream of memory. I have a walked back into the past or scratched on the doors of my origins, where it all came from, since I held up that cape for the last time. Return to Kent Town 10th year anniversary edition is a revised version of Andy Ann's first poetry book. The book can be purchased from Amazon and it contains numerous additional materials. You wake up one morning after not reading a book since your school days and you decide to be a writer. With no good or bad writing to compare against your own, you just know how to write and anyone who tells you otherwise is wrong. Hell, maybe they're jealous of your natural ability to craft the masterpiece. After all, most people need to learn through a combination of books, courses, critical feedback and workshops. Not you though. It's not their fault. They don't realise your natural talent, but they soon will. How to Write Wrong is the new book by Amanda Steele. The book, which is an interactive story, gives the reader multiple options throughout its story. The book can be purchased from Amazon. Spoken Thank you today for tuning in to Spoken Label. Spoken Label was originally set up at the beginning of 2016 and as of recording has over 200 sessions in our archive. Although the podcast can be heard on Anchor, iTunes, Apple, Spotify, YouTube and literally 10 or 11 other networks, the full archive can be found at Spoken Label all one word, spoken label dot bandcamp.com. On the bandcamp it is set as pay what you want, so you are entitled if you wish you can download it or stream it for nothing. But if you throw me a couple of pennies my way, it is always eternally grateful to help me maintain the operating costs and future running plots for the podcast. Enjoy. Spoken Label. Hi guys, Andy N, Spoken Label, back in the house, and this is a treat today. Our first live and person podcast for Spoken Label for nearly six months. Mm-hmm. And to show you how unusual it is today, we've gone back to school. <laughs> We're actually, who's with me today? Amanda, but I'm yeah. not really here. <laughs> Amanda's <laughs> just here. Just imagining to, it. She's just a willing, <laughs> willing audience today. Now, we've gone back to school today because we've got um, a dear friend of mine now. We're just working out. We've got, I've known this gentleman for nearly 10 years now, actually. Yeah. And I'll let him introduce himself in a minute, but he's, he's a teacher by trade, and um, we're actually sat in one of his classrooms. So, so make sure you behave yourself or there'll be a detention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is brilliant. I've not sat in a class like, classroom like this for probably 15 years now. I did one, one more than that, actually, over to announce as a student back in the late 90s. So, I've not had such well-behaved people in the room before. It's usually a group of 16 <laughs> and 17-year-olds throwing things at each other, so it's a, <laughs> it's it's a privilege to invite you in. <laughs> oh, heck. Now, I was wondering, Amanda's trying to throw a can of Diet Coke at me here. So. <laughs> I'm keeping an eye on her, yeah. <laughs> You've got to watch these, 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 these Bradford lasses, the troublemakers. Now, but seriously, I've got Tony Kinsella with me today, and he's the third one of the Bard Company troupe. I first interviewed Gordon Zola, the member there, and that Alan, or Gordon, holds the record for spoken label, because... There's about a 90-minute session of his online. I can well believe it, yeah. And that was good. That was a Tony. That was great fun, that day, him. He kept coming up with projects. And I've known Alan a long time. Yeah. You? I, it was to kept coming up with projects I'd never heard of. Yeah. yeah. And then um, I chatted to Jeff fairly recently, Jeff Rama, and 
Jeff, 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 Jeff knows. Jeff, not Jeff, after keeping it brief <laughs> to the point. Oh, did he keep it clean? Not in the slightest, <laughs> right? <laughs> but then we're over to Tony today, over sat in one of his classrooms. So, Tony, obviously, first of all, tell people who you are. And it's up to you whether you want to tell them what, you, what you're teaching, what you're doing, you're teaching. Or uh, not. The, the teaching's the boring bit. I teach, I teach, I've taught every aspect of English in 32 years of teaching from people who could barely hold a pen up to A level. So, uh, at the that's moment. Me. That's me. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just holding his pen perfectly well at the moment. <laughs> but uh, primarily at the moment, uh, I'm a GCSE English teacher because. Hundreds and hundreds of kids are leaving Salford schools without a pass grade. And the wonderful David Cameron a few years ago decided that they have no choice but to be doing English and maths. On so I'm being slightly sarcastic there because as a teacher, it's keeping me in work and I do support the idea that uh, you know, kids, kids should be leaving college with a good English and maths qualification alongside whatever curriculum they're doing. So that's the boring bit. But uh, yeah, since 1999, I've been doing um, stand-up comedy and um, either short projects or longer ones. And I've incorporated some poetry ever since 99, but I've been performing poetry on it in its own right. Not necessarily comics, some serious and political stuff, some funny stuff, uh, probably for about 15 years. So uh, I've been treading the boards for quite a while, it's fair to say. Yeah, but you say, do you say, you often mind me walking down to your classroom before you've been writing the stuff since you were much before that, weren't you? Really? Yeah, so. I was writing stuff and sort of, you know, hiding it uh, in my own uh, little diaries and, and notebooks and stuff without ever really showing it to anybody. Um, it was, uh, yeah. I think I've probably been teaching for a few years before I had the confidence. Teaching is a very good grounding for both um, performance, poetry and stand-up because there's so many transferable skills. You're, you're standing in front of a group of people, you're trying to engage them and to a certain extent keep them entertained. You're dealing with hecklers, you, you're trying to uh, keep people's attention on you and uh, you know being well prepared and getting your timings right. So I think I had to do about five or six years teaching before I really had the confidence to stand up in front of people in, in a different context. Do do any students know you actually do do this? Um, yeah, they usually get wind of it. There was a story um, a few years ago when I was teaching um, a GCSE English class, and the son of a very famous comedian in Manchester called Smug Roberts uh, was at the college. Oh yeah. But he wasn't actually in my English class. He'd already passed English, and uh, he was doing a film course uh, at another campus. And he had to do some sort of film, so he filmed his dad performing at the Three Minute Theatre in Manchester. Oh yeah, yeah. I was comparing that night. So he was showing mostly about his dad, but there was a little two-minute clip of me uh, doing a bit of warm-up, and, and then all the other, all the kids who do do English in in, uh, in his class were saying, "Why have you been filming our English teacher? What's our English teacher doing up on the stage telling jokes?" So once once it was out, it was out, and you know quite often the teachers will just mention, "Oh, your English teacher? I can't stand my English teacher. Oh, he's a very clever bloke. He does comedy." So then they'll come into my class and say. Is it true you do comedy? So, so it's very difficult to keep it under wraps. Obviously, I teach 16, 17 year olds, so because most of my performances in in the pub circuit, when we're not locked down and stuck inside, uh, then there wouldn't be much opportunity for them to go and watch. In the past, I have been. I've taught adult classes, and they've got wind of it, and sometimes they've turned up uh, to watch me and support me. So, oh, yeah. no, I wasn't sure how it reacts sometimes. You found like because. My case, like you know, I'm a civil servant, and yeah. I just operate under a slight alias to do, just abbreviated my name for years ago. Yeah, and I've had it was always at the time designed to try and keep it separate, like your cases, but it the worlds have come collide, don't they, all the time? Yeah. So yeah, I suppose you got to be careful with social media. You know, if they, if they saw my name online and turned up, <laughs> not, not that there's anything I would don't want. To, I do swear quite a bit sometimes <laughs> when I'm doing stand up, so that might come back and haunt me at some point. But uh, 
I don't think it would cost me my job. I think I've got every right to do what I want in my non-curriculum time. So. Yeah. <laughs> in my case, I just keep the politics out of it. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But if I'm going to do a, do a tax, I do it personally. Or yeah. do it, or, or, no, I do I do it for mask of history, history lessons. <laughs> <laughs> and that way I can get away with stuff then. So, yeah. Obviously, back to you, anyway. Um, you said before, obviously, you started the stand-up in the late 90s. Yeah. What drew you to it then, originally? Again, there's a, there's a story connected with teaching, fully enough. There was... Um, a very eccentric character called Alan Wilde, who was in my A-level class. I had an A-level class that was two evenings a week, A-level English language. And there was coursework in those days. And for the coursework, the students had to do any piece of writing. And they could choose exactly what they wanted to do. They could do a short story, would do song lyrics, poetry. And they would then have to write a commentary explaining where their ideas came from. And this lad, Alan, came to me at the end of a lesson and says, could I do my stand-up comedy script? Because uh, I'm a stand-up comedian. So my first thought was, absolutely, that's an absolutely brilliant thing to do for A-level coursework because, you know, the amount of wordplay and so on involved in comedy. But I didn't know that there was that circuit, that kind of open mic circuit. I'd seen Jasper Carrot at the Apollo. I knew, I'd seen somebody at the dance house. So I, and I knew there was that whole Bernard Manning circuit, which is not my cup of tea, uh, the kind of working men's clubs. Oh, yeah, that was a strange... But, I've been to watch that a few times. That's yeah. A, that was a strange show. But I had no idea that any Joe Blogs could get up on stage and stand behind a microphone and so... Uh, I said to Alan, um, I write comedy, I couldn't perform it myself, but if you have a chat with me, he was learning to drive, so I did some comedy about driving lessons, and he went on tour with Johnny Vegas all around the country when Johnny Vegas was a, an up-and-coming act, and he kept on messaging me saying, thank you so much for that material, it's going down really well supporting Johnny Vegas, but he didn't play Manchester, they were all over the country, oh. and when he came back to Manchester, he was doing an open mic spot, which is now called the Comedy Balloon, but the time was called the worst comedy night in Manchester. <laughs> and I said, I'll come and watch you tonight. Well, it was a Wednesday night. I'll come and watch you and you can do some of my jokes. But Alan being Alan, if somebody heckled him in the first few seconds, he would completely abandon his material and just improvise. So I got along to hear my jokes and see whether they got a laugh and he didn't do any of them. So I said to him at the end, I was a bit uh, annoyed there, Alan, because, you know, come along especially. And he says, oh, well, why don't you come and do your own jokes next week? And my first thought was, God, never in a million years. I, I couldn't stand up on stage. And I was driving home that night, and I was thinking about, there'd been about nine or ten acts on. As I say, it was called the worst comedy night in Salford. So, and I got thinking, if I'd been on that night, and I'd just learned, you know, ten minutes of jokes, little bits of paper with the jokes on, would I have been the best one? No, there was about two or three very good ones. Would I have been the worst one? Absolutely not, because there was about half a dozen. It absolutely died on the backside, and I thought, I could do better than that. So the following week, I learned ten minutes of jokes, went up on stage, got enough laughs to, to give me the buzz, and then... You know, never looked back. <laughs> that was oh. way back in 99. I've been oh. performing stand-up for 21 years ever since. Wow. So you said po your poetry came afterwards, didn't it? So. Well, the very first night I did, I remember, I don't know where it is now, but I remember doing a poem called Testosterone Man. And it was about, so, it was a time of man at CNA and stuff like that. It was basically a Mickey take of, you know, laddish mm -hmm. men sort of thing. And I had it written down. So that was one of the things I thought, if I could do five or six minutes of jokes and then read a poem, then... I'll be able to relax a little bit at the end because I won't have to remember anything. I'll have the poem in front of me. So since day one, really, I was kind of incorporating a certain amount of poetry. And if I thought of a few kind of comic poems and sometimes, sometimes it works really well because on a typical comedy balloon open mic night, you'd have 11 or 12, usually males, usually all white males, all doing jokes about relationships and stuff. So if I could shove a couple of poems in, it was something a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes the audience would appreciate the fact that they've seen something of it. And yeah. I don't, I don't know if you found this, but yeah. poets almost always get a round of applause just because you can put words together that rhyme or, or whatever. So it was a good way of guaranteeing that oh. you got some sort of positive response. No, no, completely. Oh, brilliant. Okay, um, obviously, um, I know you obviously know 
since obviously we first met, we rolled for reckon about 2011-ish. We're trying it? to figure out exactly when it was, but yeah, yeah sounds about right, well, yeah. Notice where my dates are at diabolical. <laughs> uh, your first collection came out before you joined Bard Company, didn't it? That's was right, it, yeah, wasn't before. Yeah. Yeah. it was a while before, wasn't it? Yeah, so, 2013 and Bard Company started, I think, I think 2015, was, but I might be wrong. I think it was but 15, yeah, I think it's 15, because... Right, uh, the band I was with Jeff had means and means and finished right, at yeah, about course, the same yeah. point. We've got mutual it, mutual band member, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. it crossed it crossed <laughs> over that point. Yeah. yeah, that's why it makes sense. Tell us about your first collection then. So right, so um, I mean, I've always, I've only self-published, um, and you know, just tried to sell them to friends and given a few as, as presents to family and so on. I've got a very good friend who's on the comedy circuit, who performs as Rod Shepherd, but he's actually called Jeff Downs, and he actually works for um, Manchester Council, but he does all the techie stuff all the kind of filming and printing and all that type of stuff. So he very kindly um, did the editing, sorting out the cover uh, feature and um, uh, made sure that I got, I kind of paid about a quid a copy to print them to a reasonably good quality. So because that opportunity was there and it wasn't going to cost me a fortune, I was going to at least break even, uh, I decided to, you know, I had poems on um, inboxes in, on laptops and I had lots of stuff on scribble bits of paper, but nothing to kind of keep them together for posterity. So it was yeah. more that than anything else, really. To, well, tell uh, us about the title of it, first of all, because it's a great title. And you're, yeah, you're a great man with titles. I've got to think about very long titles for some reason, yeah. So um, the first book is called If You Tolerate This, Your Brain Cells Will Be Next. And what do you mean the one every title? Which is... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> man is nodding ahead and waving a can in the air. I always mix it up. Is it the Manic Street Preachers? I've, I've nicked it off a band. It's the Manic Street Yeah, I always mix those up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I just, I just heard the title of that song and then it just dawned on me that, you know... Just kind of uh, boulderizing that title could be quite a nice one, yeah. Was it the material in that collection? Was it all quite a con concentrated time in written, or was it all various um, points? No, I'd say, you know, I've, I've had a couple of volumes out now, and they've both, both basically been the kind of legacy of stuff that I've been writing for quite a while. So um, I don't think there was anything from 99, so that would have been really uh, going some, but uh, there was probably stuff that I'd written over the past three or four years that ended up congregating into the book. I'd started to um, do more poetry and perform more poetry. And the other thing is, having a book looks a lot more professional on stage <laughs> than having lots of little bits of paper. Oh, yeah. I'm not one of these people who can memorise. I've got about three or four that I could just about get away with at the drop of the hat without without having to um, rehearse no, them. They're not like our mutual friend Gordon Zogel. No, no, no. He does it. He's much older than me, and he can remember absolutely reams and reams of stuff. Sorry, a little bit older than me. Sorry, Alan. Yeah, sorry, Alan. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just say you're, you're about the same age for a couple of years. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, so yeah, then I say your thought because it's um, I love no, you love what your material is, and you can elaborate. Your, I don't know about your style on this one because um, you're often after you do your full length shows, we can talk about in a minute. But I most mem always memorize you more for your bullet point poems. Yeah, your tiny little ones. Where does where did you get the idea of that? Because I've seen you do that a number of occasions, and they got on I, I think sent electric each time. I think if I've had one moment of genius in my entire life, this was probably it because there's loads of real dad jokes, you know, jokes that everybody's heard before. And I kind of found a way of taking the joke and turning it into a poem. So <clears> you almost win a kind of double whammy because if the joke is funny enough, it's probably going to get a laugh anyway as a joke. And if you've then actually managed to make it rhyme, and it's amazing how many times you can make a joke rhyme. And then suddenly you've got a um, nice, nice word you've used for it, a little bullet point poem, a little uh, it's like know, it's, line poem. Yeah, it's almost like something the teacher in you, basically. You can put it up on like a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> yeah. I'll give you one example, which is one of my favourites. Uh, actually, there's two on this page. Again, exactly what you're Reading talking Bobox, about. Reading Well, these are two very short ones, but they're, they're in the kind of vein that you're talking about. The base, these are basically one-liner jokes that I've somehow managed to change into a poem. So the first one's called A Catholic Upbringing. Telling your schoolboy impure thoughts is really humiliating. We called it confession and penance, but Father Murphy called it speed dating. <laughs> 
<laughs> and the second one is uh, a dodgy first date in a posh restaurant, another long title. Title's wrong with the poem. <laughs> the menu was a little bit tricky. Cordon Bleu for the Nouveau Riche. I told her I wanted a quickie, but the correct pronunciation was quiche. <laughs> so you see, there's an old dad joke. Yeah, yeah. I had a right mistake at the date with my girlfriend last night. I asked her if she wanted a quickie, but it turned out the pronunciation was quiche. So it's a joke. Yeah. But because niche and quiche rhyme, and because uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a French restaurant, you can somehow manage to, and as I say, you, you get a double winner because uh, people like a short, pithy poem, and there's also a good joke lurking in there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good. It's good. It's, that's what I love your style with them, because they, 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 they cross over into both genres brilliantly. Yeah. And I've seen you do full length sets on both of them before now. And poetry crowds that, and yeah. comedy yeah. sets. Yeah. And it goes down like a storm each time, because they're just I, so I just funny. I what liners have been my favourite comedians are people like, uh, I'm sure people know Milton Jones and yeah. Gary Delaney, Stuart Francis, a brilliant American one called um, Dimitri Martin, an older one called Stephen Wright. <laughs> Uh, Emo Phillips, they're the comedians that I really love because uh, Gary, Le- Gary Delaney's last um, tour was called Comedy Purist and he was making the same point that pure comedy is joke, joke, joke. Yeah. I love storytelling comedy and my yeah. people like Billy Connolly can go on with half an idea and keep people entertained for two hours. I can't do that. <laughs> That's not necessarily the sort of stuff I gravitate towards. I really like wordplay. Maybe it's part of being an English teacher and a poet, uh, but I really like wordplay and I like it when the jokes are contained within the, the double meaning of words. Yeah, now you've done a couple of full-length shows, haven't you, over the past couple of years? About seven or eight now, over, I've over seen a few years, yeah. four yeah. of them, I seem to recall. Yeah. I've had mostly at Gulliver's now. Okay, tell us about what made you want to start to full-length shows. Yeah, uh, back to the, we're teaching again, because um, I've been teaching for 32 years now, so that, that tells me that it was seven years ago. I hit 25 years of teaching, and I've done loads of uh, guest spots. I've, I've done a little <coughs> bit at the comedy store, not on the big nights, but there's a Sunday night thing called New Material. Uh, that I can sometimes get on, you know, two or three times a year. So I've done the comedy store, and a lot of people might know the buzz and um, excess malarkey and stuff like that. I'd only ever really done 15, 20 minute slots. Um, and when I hit 25 years of teaching, I just got to thinking, I've never attempted to write a full length show. And I should write one about 25 years of teaching. And when I first started, all teachers have to learn all about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I'm sure some of your listeners have probably come across it. And I don't know why. I was told all about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I've been teaching for 25 years and I've never used it. So I thought, I will use it now. I'll have it as the backbone of a comedy show. So I did a show about Maslow. And I did some research into who Abraham Maslow was. I did lots of jokes. I had the um, hierarchy of needs up on stage with me. And I also collaborated with them. Uh, I always tend to collaborate with musicians. So at that time, it was a friend of mine called Dave Lockley who did some music. He did um, I Don't Like Mondays and Don't Stand So Close to Me, which... Uh, a song based in the classroom. So that, that was the idea, and it just kind of broke up. So once I'd done that one, I kind of set myself an objective. I thought, I really enjoyed doing that. Um, I'm going to write one hour of comedy every year and try and make it better and better and better, and, you know, sort of challenge myself. So I did one, I did a couple on um, Scandinavian concepts of happiness. That's how rock and roll my shows are. <laughs> one on Danish Hugo and one on Swedish Lagom. And then I've done, um, show, I did one when, when Brexit happened in 2016. I knew lots of city breaks in Europe. So I did a show that was, for about oh. the first 20 minutes, was my views on Brexit. But then it was my five favourite European cities. I remember that one. You yeah, saw yeah. that one in Gulliver's, yeah. didn't you? Yeah. yeah, yeah then, and then uh, I've done one based on bands. I did one on um, Shangri-Las, the American band. Um, I did, I've done one on the undertones. Uh, so, yeah, so a whole range of things, really. But I was St. Pauli Football Club. I'm a big fan of a, a left-wing German football club in Hamburg called St. Pauli. I've done a show about them. And it's been great because I love the writing process. People say to me, like the Undertone show, it took me six or seven months to write it, a few more weeks to rehearse it. I, uh, I worked with a, a singer called Steve O'Donoghue and got him involved in it. And then eventually I did it a couple of times locally. And then I actually took it over to Derry Theatre and did it 
with a couple of the undertones in the audience. I really, people, I've seen the pictures of yeah, that one, yeah. Thing, yeah, which is on YouTube. But uh, people say to me, you spent all that time writing it. You only did it two or three times, and then you moved on to your next project. And that's because the writing is not a chore to me. The writing is an absolute joy. <laughs> so, you know, as, as I'm writing something and, and improving it and perfecting it, I absolutely love that. It's not, it's not time wasting for me. It's not, it's not kind of, you know, hard work. It's just something that I absolutely love doing. So, yes, once I've, once I've uh, trialled it a couple of times, I can get it on YouTube. It's there for posterity. And then move on to my next project and yeah. start writing again. I'm a gamble like that a lot of the time with projects and myself. So, yeah, I get it completely with that. I want to ask you also, well, you remind me about Dave Lockley as well. The bootleg Mark Chapman. Yes, there's a name I've not heard for a while. Yeah, yeah. now I think I saw you on the last gig you did for for Cuckoo. Yeah. And I'd seen you once before that when you two were going. Now, do you want to tell Amanda and everybody else <laughs> what the bootleg Mark Chapman was? And, and who, Mandy, do you know who Mark Chapman is? Mark Chapman's the man who shot John Lennon. So there's a we actually nicked it off a group called Half Man Half Biscuit, who I'm sure a lot of your friends. Yeah, I know that. I've got friends that are massive um, with them. But there is a group called Bootleg Beatles who are meant to be the best Beatles tribute act and actually play really big venues. Uh, and um, funnily enough, my mate Dave is a big Beatles fan and seen bootleg match and seen the bootleg Beatles a few times. And there's a song called When the Evening Sun Goes Down on one of Half Man Half Biscuit's album. Uh, where he actually, I don't know if you know Half Man Half Biscuit, but there's lots of sort of really weird references to obscure they're weird, people. They're weird band there, isn't it? <laughs> and there's a line that says, I'm off to see the bootleg Beatles, as the bootleg Mark Chapman, meaning he's going to try and shoot the John Lennon. <laughs> and I absolutely love that line. So um, Dave is actually a very, uh, he's actually a serious singer-songwriter and has been performing for many years in bands and whatever. That's um, what got me when I saw you two there together. I thought, I know how serious well, Dave is, yeah. I started, because I'm a poet, I started writing lyrics and he would get up on stage and sing some of his own songs and some of the ones that we collaborated on. And then I just wrote a really quirky song, which I completely forgot the name of it. Um, it had a one-word title. It'll come back to me in a minute. And I gave the lyrics to Dave, and he said, I really like that one. And then he said, why don't we sing it together? You know, you, I'll come to one of your comedy gigs, and I'll play guitar. And, and you traumatised, that was it. It was called, yeah, traumatised. Yeah, and um, we did that one, and it went really well. And we found <clears> a couple <throat> of uh, cover versions. Um, Porky and the Juice Pigs do a great song called The Only Gay Eskimo and Dolphin Boy. We, we nicked a couple of other songs. Then we started to write more together, so... As well as writing serious songs together, we started writing comedy songs that we enjoyed doing a few comedy gigs. And again, it was something different. You don't get many comedy duos doing comedy songs. So uh, we started to get lots of gigs. We actually got uh, to the final of the City Life um, competition, which is one that's been won by Peter Kay and Carolina Heard. We came about uh, last last plus one in the, in the annual <laughs> final, but it was quite an honour. We played to the comedy store in front of 450 people. So that was the kind of pinnacle. And we're still really good mates. We just got out of the habit of doing it and I moved on to... You know, more solo stuff and bad company. And Dave still, we're still really good mates, and we, we could still, you know, pull off a boot like Mark Chapman's gig if we ever decided to. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Now, obviously, since you mentioned bad company, I better come into bad company next before we touch on your your current collection. So, I know the story about bad company, but for yeah. people that don't, do you want to tell them? Yeah, I was quite honoured to be recruited, really, because um, I'd met um, Gordon Zola quite a while ago. I'd not seen him for a while, but we'd started to uh, mix on the same circuit again for a couple of years. Jeff Armour, I only met, uh, he was running a gig at Tilsley, he was running one in Gulliver's in Manchester, and I just, uh, Gordon Zola told me it was a nice gig to do, so I just went along and did one and then met Jeff. And then um, after I'd known them both for a couple of years, so I'd been working regularly with them both for a couple of years, there was another poet who is uh, originally from Wakefield but lives in Wigan called Ian Whiteley, and Ian thought it would be a good idea uh, to put a, a bit of a sort of group together, so um, a group of poets who were doing songs to back in music and were doing some uh, political stuff. And he was talking to Jeff, there was three of them, and they wanted to go for a quartet. And he got talking to Jeff and Gordon and said, I'd like to get a bit of a comedy element in this. Do you know anybody who does poetry who's on the same page as us in terms of 
socialism, <laughs> uh, but could also bring a bit of a comedy element. So God bless them, both Jeff and uh, Alan Gordon Zola thought that I might be the right man. And, um, God help him. <laughs> yeah, God help him. just took it, you know, I didn't have to rehearse or audition or anything. He just took them at the word and we uh, we started meeting and writing stuff and rehearsing and uh, the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> He'd done, they've done two albums together as a quartet, haven't yeah, they, as we well? Made, so. yeah, we made two albums, yeah. The first one was a bit of a sort of mismatch. <clears throat> there was some good stuff on it, uh, which is called All Systems Go. Um, we I, always re- I always remember that Theresa May one on that because it's, it's funny because we think that's the worst recording in the sense that we all sound really flat and you know musically yeah. it's a bit of a disaster. But whenever somebody buys it, they always come back and say, "I really love the Theresa May." It was basically a parody of Yesterday. I played him, Andrew. You've got to hear Theresa that May, one because you told the immigrants to go away. So that <laughs> when she was Home Secretary, and then of course yeah. when she became Prime Minister, we just tweaked it slightly, but it was still relevant. Um, but we worked with uh, there's a fantastic Wigan folk band called uh, Merry Hell, uh, which are all the, the Kettle family of all things. And John Kettle runs um, a recording studio in uh, in Wigan, where he sort of trains people to DJ and, and things like that. But he also um, helps people to do professional recordings. So we just had to turn up with a bunch of poems, give him a rough idea whether it was a, an upbeat punk thing or a more melodic thing, and he, he would put a tune together in about ten minutes. And then he'd start working all his wonders on electronic drum beats and, <laughs> and all sorts of stuff. And usually took about a day to do one track. So um, wow, by the end not- of um, half a dozen or a dozen sessions we ended up with a full CD and the second one which is called Raising the Standards uh, we're, we're really proud of it we think it's a really superb piece of work we're yeah, just it, about to it, tour I think, it. Yeah, I think it's a good album yeah. definitely and we, I, I do like the first album but you're right I think the second, second one was more coherent we, we kind yeah. of knew what we were doing a little bit more and, and John Kettle wasn't involved in the first one there was a very nice guy who did help us out with the music but he wasn't quite up to John's calibre whereas John but um, yeah we were just about to start touring it we had two very low key gigs and had a whole load of festivals in the calendar for uh, uh, for the summer, but you can probably guess what happened next. <laughs> yeah. Like everybody else, everything went on the back burner yeah. when this flaming no, COVID game. Typical now. Um, you bought uh, like a, what do you call it, an interlude piece, haven't you? The red book. That's a very good way of putting it, yeah. 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 So um, when we were talking about my one-liner poems uh, before, I, used, I have these little tiny books. They're actually just a bit of a prop. Some of the poems are in there, but I more or less just use them as a prop. And one of them is a little tiny red leather bound book. And I have this opening joke where I said, uh, I'm going to read some poems from my little red book, so-called, because hardly anybody's ever read it. And Ian Whiteley really loved, Ian Whiteley really loved that joke. I've heard you do that before, that one, yeah. yeah. We had a Zoom meeting, and it was Ian who came up with the idea that to fill the void uh, as a sort of interim thing, we should maybe put a book together, because it's something we can all do individually, uh, stick it on um, on emails and, and send them to each other. I did the editing job, I did the proofreading, somebody else sorted out the printing, and we called it Bad Company's Little Red Book, because Ian... And I'm not precious about that. It's, this is another piece of work I'm involved in, so I was quite yeah. happy to, to the, go with that title. What's the writing process like for that then, normally? Well, I mean, I'm, guess, I'm guessing you do obviously like you write your own solo bits, don't you? And then yeah. you, have, you have bits of what you collaborate on with other members. Well, well, what was different about this, and again, credit to Ian because it was his idea to approach it this way. Um, we decided not to just do a book of uh, poems with four different poetic voices. We'd, it was almost uh, like the old summer annuals, you know, the way the Beano and the Dandy mm. do summer annuals. So with a very left wing bias. We've included things like uh, horoscopes, socialist <laughs> horoscopes, the workers control the means of prediction. Um, we've got um, dingbats, we've got uh, anagrams, we've got um, uh, spoof adverts for Trivial Pursuit and Cluedo, but <laughs> political versions of it. And in between all that, we've got lots and lots of photographs of Bad Company. I don't know who would buy it for that reason, but there you go. Uh, we've got a few song lyrics from the second album. We've got, um, and we all wrote uh, brand new poems. We didn't, uh, we didn't use just Bad Company stuff. We all just thought. This is a good opportunity to write something that would fit the book really well. And we all did, you know, roughly about 25% each. And Ian did all the wonderful um, 
setting of the typefaces, everything, Jeffrey Armour, so, so it's a real team effort. And um, I know loads of people have bought it online and lots of people have been taking photographs of it and saying how much they've enjoyed it. So it was something a bit different for me. It combined my comedy background and my poetry background, so it was an absolute um, yeah. wonderful opportunity for me. Well, Mr. Dawson brings my copy of that down. Yeah. I'll, I'll get a picture for you with me and Amanda, it's, I promise um, you. But feet up with a glass of wine or a cup of tea. It's, it's that sort of read, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, good stuff. Now, obviously, um, you've bought another collection out now, haven't you? Yeah. Just, which we we've gone a long, roundabout way. We've got to it in our venture, haven't we? So, okay, tell people what. Oh, look, I love your title too. What's the title? Is yeah, another, not quite as long as the other one, but almost. It's called Vladimir Putin is in my kettle. There was yeah, but again, credit to Jeff Downs. He did an absolutely brilliant job of it. It's a very professional photograph, but I'm looking at it right now, and it's me in black and white, looking really horrified about Vladimir Putin being in my kettle. <laughs> And a lovely bright communist red kettle uh, in the picture. I, I really love that Schindler's List combination of black and white and colour. Yeah, so I was really pleased. You know, it's, it's self-published, but it, it looks really no, professional, it looks, doesn't looks it? Yeah. Really yeah. Good, that. Okay, yeah. where did the title come from first? So there that? was a new story long before Novichok and Salisbury Cathedral, a, a little bit before that. Um, there were stories that the Russians were starting to spy on us again uh, through our household devices. So people were worried about leaving the um, laptops on and. Uh, mobile phones but the story was that even things like i don't know how it works but that russia could spy on us through uh, microwave ovens um uh, toasters <laughs> you have to sort of be careful <laughs> and it, it could just be absolute paranoia but there was you know it was enough to make the news and it was on news oh, and so on brilliant. so i just love the idea that um i don't know what vladimir putin would want to learn from me in my, uh, <laughs> my you know a little flat where i live alone and do my own thing so i don't quite know what state secrets i'm harboring but I just love the idea that Vladimir Putin was personally keeping an eye on me and uh, everybody else. So the idea of the kettle seemed like a really innocuous domestic item. <laughs> it wouldn't have worked if I said laptop or something like that. The, the kettle just made it funny no. to me. Yeah. No, no, completely yeah. so. Then, again, like your first question, was this road, the piece of road over a matter of time, was it then? Last couple of years again? Or yeah, so it was, there, was a, there was a gap of seven years. So I suppose the, the, there's a poem called Charlton Heston's Fond of Guns, which I wrote <laughs> when I saw... Wow. Um, the Michael Moore film, uh, Bowling for Columbine. Yeah, I've got to say, is it, is yeah. it that one there? That's, what, so, that's going back quite a way, isn't it? I mean, it might not have necessarily wrote the poem as soon as I saw the film, but it was certainly that film that inspired it. I, gu I, I guessed that when I saw the music Edward. Yeah. Was it Edward? Was it Edward? Um, Dead Man, Jimmy yeah. John Michael film. And I got a twig about him and liking Guns End, so. Well, I mean, he's a good actor, he's made some good yeah. films, but he was um, chairman of the NRA, the National Rifle Association. And in the film, uh, he holds a gun rally in a town where a little six-year-old girl had been murdered by a gunman about two weeks before. And Michael Moore confronts him about whether this is necessarily a brilliant idea. And he um, does a famous line about, you can't take the gun from my cold dead hands. And about 18 months later, he did die. And I can't say I shed too many tears <laughs> uh, when he did. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, is, um, this book, obviously, it's got some more and more serious pieces in it as yeah. well, hasn't it? Because... Yeah. Obviously, like your first book, I know it's a lot of the one-liners in the book, and it's obviously it's got it's very you, it's very um, personality. Yeah. But you you went more inward in this book, I think, didn't you? Because you read a couple of pieces out at the Sunday Assembly recently. Yes. About your family and stuff. And yeah. Was it a deliberate choice to do with this, to me, or did it come naturally? Yeah, I mean, the first book had some serious stuff in the sense that there was some quite political stuff. I've got one about um, uh, Rosa Parks. I've got one about Ian Curtis's death. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't all comedy stuff. I'd say it was primarily comedic. The first book. Um, but yeah, um, the second one, there was a bit, bit more of a conscious effort. I wanted it to be a bit different. So although there's the punchy little one-liners that we talked about before, and there's some very uh, tough-thumping political stuff in there as well, 
Um, but yeah, I've written one. I went on a holiday um, a few years ago with a company called Travelize, and it was a really um, inspiring experience. They take 50% sighted passengers and 50% blind or visually impaired. And the sighted passengers actually get a 50% discount. We went to the Albalfi coast in Italy, but you escort a blind person around every day. Um, and you're their eyes, so we went to Pompeii and, and um, oh, wow. Capri and things like that. So I felt I really needed to write about that, and I wrote a poem called Let Me Be Your Eyes. But there's also one, my two sons have grown up now, my sons are 27 and 31, um, and I, I started to reflect on the experience of more or less brought the kids up as a single dad, I won't bore you with the details, but that's more or less how it happened. So I wrote about the importance of my, my two sons to me and uh, how it's still a very important relationship and how we're all best friends now that they've grown up kind of thing yeah so yeah it was more reflective um a little bit of uh, political stuff a bit of comedy stuff but definitely definitely a lot more personal stuff maybe i've sort of evolved as a writer and feel more comfortable writing that kind of stuff and sharing it with people i think all of it is a sharing yeah. half the time yeah. you find like yeah. it's, i think when you get you first start of your writing you're trying to hide yourself and yeah i think that's right I think yeah. when you get more confident in your own body you're writing you more think right this is who i am yeah and my, uh, my youngest son actually read it out at an event in Southampton when he was studying there and said he actually started wanting to cry halfway through. So, oh, my work oh, here is done. My work here is done, yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> I didn't know, I didn't know about that one. I've met Jamal's your older son, isn't he? So, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, he's the youngest son. Oh, so the younger one, Jamal, yeah. 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 I met Jamal at a bad company gig. Yeah. Um, my older son lives in London. So ah, see, I always get, get, I get mixed yeah. up when yeah. you've got two yeah. sons, that's why. So. Yeah. That's why. Right. So, okay, you were hinting before, weren't you, about um, you've got the idea of an undertone show on the way, weren't you? Is that no, no, that's, that's already done. That's already done, that's, is it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, well, what happened with that one? Um, I went to, I was a big undertones fan as a, as a student when I was in Leeds University and even before that. And I saw them several times, but I saw them at Leeds University in, uh, it would have been 1983, because I remember which album had come out. They did four albums and it was the last one. And then um, they basically split up. And then in the early 2000s, I think 2000, 2001, they got back together, but with a different lead singer, Fergal Sharkey didn't want to be involved anymore. And I saw in 2017, I think that was the year, yeah, that they were um, playing Leeds University again. So out of sheer curiosity, I thought, what would it be like to see the undertones in the same room that I'd seen them in 35 years previously? And there's a poet who you probably know called Eva Curlis, who was uh, yeah, yeah, an undergraduate Eva. English teacher as well now. Uh, but she was an undergraduate and a contact her and said, could I meet you on Friday? She didn't want to go to the gig, it was a Friday night. Uh, but I said, could I meet you in Leeds University and you give me a tour and I'll see how much you remember of it. And then I went to the gig in the evening. And when I was driving home that night, uh, the most famous undertone song is Teenage Kicks. And the opening line is, a teenage dream so hard to beat. And it just struck me that when I saw them in 1983, I was just coming out of my teenage years, I was 19 going on 20. And the undertones are all roughly contemporary in me, so they would have been 19 going on 20. And then I just got thinking, what's happened to my teenage dreams in the 35 years? between seeing the undertones at Leeds University and what's happened to the undertones in that oh, period of time. Completely, yeah. So I did a load of research. I got to, there's a biography um, written by the bass player, Mickey Bradley. There's a load of stuff on, on YouTube and whatever. And um, I did it at Bolton Socialist Club, which is always my go-to venue. And then I decided to go to, uh, sorry, when I was writing it, I decided to go over to Derry, uh, the Bogside area, you, you know, all about the politics of Derry and London, Derry and so on. And uh, I just wanted to take photographs because that's where the undertones are brought up. So I use a lot of pictures in my uh, in my full-length shows. And it's my eldest son, Nazi, who's a football journalist. Uh, I told him a couple of weeks before I went that I was going. And he said, why don't you contact the undertones? Hadn't dawned on me in a million years. You know, they were my idols, my heroes, that you could actually try and contact them. So I went on Facebook. There was an undertones page, which just seemed to be like a fan page. But I just posted, 
I'm going to be in Derry on Easter weekend. If anybody knows the undertones, it would be brilliant if you got in touch and thought no more about it. Three days later, totally anonymous message that turned out to be from the wife of John O'Neill, the undertones <laughs> guitarist who wrote Teenage Kicks. They just said, sure, John will meet you on the Sunday in the City Hotel. No, it can't be that easy. <laughs> <laughs> An undertone can't just wow. look at my email and say, God bless him, he turned up. Two and a half hours, absolute gold dust. And then when I got back home, I was the show was more or less written and I was planning to do it locally. And then again, my son just said, why don't you contact the undertones and see if they can help you to get it in Derry? That's the place to do it. In the same way that the Beatles are, are idolised in Liverpool, the undertones are still absolutely huge. They're still the biggest things to come out of Derry, apart from possibly Downer. Uh, so I got in touch with him, a bit cheeky, and just said, do you know any pubs where I could put my gig on? And he said, uh, he got, again, got back to me 24 hours later, Forget about pubs. My niece is the manager of the Derry Playhouse Theatre, the professional theatre in Derry. I'll have a word with her, she'll put it on. <laughs> next, <laughs> next thing you know, I'm going to Derry to put on this show. And we've got 70% of the box office takings. We've got oh, 85 wow. people in a venue that seated 100. Uh, my oh, two wow. sons came across. Jeff Arbor came with his yeah. girlfriend, Tracy. Uh, loads of my friends from back home came. And, and then a load of Undertone fans and two members of the Undertones, the two O'Neill brothers oh, were in the audience. And Damien O'Neill came back from London to Derry especially to see the show. Right. It's been one big night where I've actually been in proper show business. <laughs> After that, you know, made it all worthwhile. Wow, that's a story and a half that one, Tony. Mm, yeah. Now, what plans do you have for the future? Then? You get um, and what's next for yourself? Then? Yeah, there's a, there's a few things. I mean, first of all, on the subject we're talking about, I would really like to write up the Undertones experience as a book. So it'd be partly a book about the Undertones. That's what I was thinking about. I was getting scripts yeah. and that then plays. I just read a book by uh, up, yeah. a stand-up comedian called Ian Stone called "To Be Someone," which is uh, it's the name of a jam song. And it's about him growing up as a jam obsessive and does exactly what I want to do with the Undertones thing and what I did in the show. It's half about him and it's half about the jam. So I want to do the same thing with the Undertones. So that's my next big writing project. Um, in terms of performing, I've actually already written. I mean, I've got my St. Pauli show, which we performed twice and then went into lockdown. So again, that's, yeah. that needs a bigger audience. We were going to do that in Glasgow where there's a massive um, Glasgow Celtic St. Pauli link. Uh, we actually had a gig all sorted out during lockdown. So we still want to do it at some point in the future. And I've also written a show about Kirsty McCall, who a lot of people will know from the fairy tale of New York, but was oh, absolutely yeah. brilliant singer-songwriter in her own right. Died tragically uh, she at went, a relatively young she age. She went in a heck of a way to go. Yeah. You, do you hear the story about that? Yeah. She was saving her children's life and got sliced in half by a, a boat that shouldn't have been in those waters, but it belonged to a prince, so there was never any uh, justice done. So it's a very big story, but I absolutely love her music and... I've collaborated yeah, really with really versatile, very, very, very really versatile yeah. singer songwriter. She's a great singer songwriter. You think her herself. case, her case, the whole family is because um, she's got two brothers yeah. that were in a band I love called The Bible. Yeah. And I loved all the Bible and the, and the father is obviously the father yeah. himself is this December is twenty years since her death, so I'd always targeted that would be the time to do it, but obviously it's a bit up in the air, it might have to be the twenty first anniversary I of think a death. It of probably will be the twenty first yeah, so really. You know, the show's ready to go. There's a brilliant singer songwriter called Jess Silk who lives in Wolverhampton, but I said I can go and do the show in Wolverhampton somewhere, and she can come and do it in uh, somewhere in the Manchester area, and she's quite willing to, to be involved in that. Whether that's changed now that she's been in lockdown and has lost loads of money on gigs, I don't know, but she's, uh, God bless her, she's quite keen to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just funny times at the minute with the lockdown and stuff. It's like it's, because it impacts a lot of writers and creative people in very, yeah. very different ways itself. So. I've not lost any money because I'm a full time teacher. Much as I love gigging, it's not, not really hit me in the pocket. No, same, uh, same for me, same for me, really, John. Well, funnily enough, I was talking to Jeff Rabbit the other day, we were both saying, I'd actually turn down gigs at the moment if it meant that somebody who needs the money would get it. No, in my stead, you know, at least yeah, in the short term. Yeah. Do you think yeah. you'll do, do, can you envisage yourself doing a third part company album in the future? Oh, there will definitely be a third part company album. In fact, we've already written a load of stuff for it. It's just 
not where we, we might well start going to the studio quite soon. We've got no plans to release it anytime soon because we've never got a chance to sell the second one. So until we go out and gig the second one and try and sell that. But I've already written um, about four or five potential lyrics for it, depending on what about Stonewall, what about the, uh, the gay community uh, rising up against the police, what about Ruby Nell Bridges, who was a... Uh, a little black girl who was one of the first ones to go to a whites only school in America. Yeah, the story. Famous yeah. photographs of uh, armed guards taking her into school. This little girl, seven years old, with a briefcase. So I had to write a song about that. Ruby went to school today. Um, so um, yeah, there's there's loads of stuff. There will definitely be a third Bad Company album. Uh, when when and where that will come, I don't know. Like I say, we could get into the studio tomorrow. We've probably got enough stuff to start recording it. But because lockdown happened just before we started promoting. Yeah, album two raising the standards. We really need to focus on that a bit longer. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. one of those things where it's seeing it. So yeah, everyone's you've found a lot of moments of creativity. It's a case of I know I'm I'm writing loads. I know you are, Amanda, aren't you? Yeah. It's a case of where it leads us next when we eventually come out. Because like, yeah, as yeah. of recording, like Bolton, for example, has gone back into a fort. Has gone down to lockdown again, hasn't it? Quite yeah. severe. Yeah. Like it said, Salford's not. It's what's it been like around here? Has it been okay around here, Salford? Is it? Salford's a bit rough. Obviously, Bolton's worse, isn't it? And Oldham and wherever. But um, yes, yeah, certainly there's been. We're kind of wondering because I've just started uh, teaching classes in this very room uh, in the last couple of days, but um, two or three Salford schools have already sent the kids home. I'll send certain year groups home. Yeah. Really I've heard about but one in Berry. Yeah, the well, yeah. So I don't think we'll get through till Christmas without a temporary lockdown. And I really hope we don't end up with another two or three month one. But if some if somebody tests positive in this classroom, I'll have to go and shield for two weeks, irrespective yeah. of whether I've got any symptoms. So I think that's going to be ongoing. We're a little bit more ready for it now. There's all sorts of stuff. Uh, in place on what we call Canvas, which is our online thing, and yes. you know, Zoom and Teams and all, yeah, Outlook Teams. So we're kind of a little bit more ready for it this time that we will be able to carry on teaching. Well, fingers crossed, isn't it? Now, yeah. if people want to find out more about you, Tony, where are the best going? Yeah, I mean, the, your best bet is Facebook. I'm under my own name, Tony Kinsella, K I N S E W L A, on Facebook. And that's where most people contact me. Um, otherwise, I don't do any of these fancy links and PayPals and everything, but uh, I'm on email, tony.kinsella61 at gmail.com uh, and you can email me if you uh, fancy getting hold of any of these three books yep. Bad Company's Little Red Book or either of my solo volumes uh, the solo one's not the first one's not available at the moment but uh, my friends are going to be doing a print run in the next couple of weeks I'll even do bundles for you I'll do two for a tenner or three for 14 quid or whatever so yeah, get in touch if, if you fancy if people it. want to bungle loads of money across um, no reason whatsoever to you yeah. to pay pal please do it to that Tony can well, 61 to, email address I'm not going to give it the hard sell because I'm, I'm already in profit I, I didn't have much outlay and I'm already in profit so absolutely. <laughs> it's more about spreading the word and love people to, to share yeah. the poems that have taken a lot of uh, time over writing so it's more about getting the work out there than getting a few quid in my bank account though obviously I wouldn't say no to that perfect so, okay Tony that's all my questions today we're going to take, let you take a quick break and you're going to come back and read us Several bits and pieces out from all three of these books. Right. See you in a minute, guys. Thank you. Spoken, mate. Hi, guys. Yep, yeah, still here with Mr. Kinsella, who's um, he's not he's not got his chalk out. He's not lobbed a chalk at my head yet, so that's amazing. Oh, we're much more high-tech than chalk these days. <laughs> it's all interactive boards now, yeah. <laughs> Why do you lo lo love the boardrooms? Um, I don't know how to use the damn thing. I just, I just asked one of the students to do it, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, service, Tony. Over to you, my friend. You can read out. A couple of pieces from all three of these books. Yeah, so if we do a little cross-section of um, the various books I've talked about. So the first one, um, the book that I did in 2013, called If You Tolerate This, Your Brain Cells Will Be Next. And I did a couple of short, punchy uh, comedy ones before, uh, where I sort of used jokes in order to get to the poem. This is a slightly longer one, but it's very much in the same vein. It's basically a whole load of jokes strung together so that they rhyme. And it's called She Thought. 
and uh, probably slightly politically incorrect these days, which I'm, I'm, the world changes in seven years, but it's dedicated to the least intelligent girl I ever went out with. And believe me, there was some competition for that. <laughs> it's called She Thought. She Thought Wounded Pride was when lions get hurt. She Thought a portable TV was a trucker in a skirt. She Thought Posh and Bex was champagne laced with lager. She Thought a story set in the future was a foresight saga. Oh. She Thought Queen Victoria was a gay train station. She thought DNA was the National Dyslexia Association. Think about it. She thought the Isle of Dogs was a ghetto for mingers. She thought a golden shower was a job lot of gingers. She thought a blunderbuss was a driver's mistake. She thought a boomerang was an exploding cake. She thought the X-Files was a list of divorces. She thought missing links were hidden golf courses. She thought a beachcomber was unconscious sand. She thought WD-40 was a reggae band. She thought jet lag was for keeping planes warmer. She thought mow the grass was a Jewish informer. They're two of the oldest jokes in the book. She thought a finger buffet was a snack bar for cannibals. She thought a shih tzu was a load of dead animals. She thought espresso was an artificial language. She thought Buffy the Vampire Slayer was a garlic sandwich. She thought a clockwork orange was a crap mobile phone. That's true. She thought Jennifer Capriati killed Sherlock Holmes. She thought a glossary was a catalogue of lipstick. She thought Tiger Woods was a bad place for a picnic. She thought chili dogs were South American mongrels. She thought origami was one of the wombles. She thought strong liquor was a powerful tongue. She thought a pooper scooper was an ABBA song. I thought she'd love me forever and ever, but last night she dumped me. I guess I'm not so clever. Oh. <laughs> Good before, one, before Andy has a seizure, I'll do a more serious one. So uh, <laughs> this is from Bad Company's um, Little Red Book. And um, we had a whole load of festivals lined up, uh, Green Gathering, um, Wigging Diggers, all sorts of uh, festivals uh, all over the place. And uh, we were absolutely gutted to cancel them. So I just had the idea of writing a poem called Festival for the Book to pay, pay lip service to the fact we couldn't do them this year. So this is Festival. This is by Bolshe Bard, by the way. I'm not Tony Kinsella in Bard Company, I'm Bolshe Bard. You were my festival, my midnight campfire, my jangly guitars on starlit nights, my manic laughter trap, my bugs on a canvas ground sheet co-assassin, my spirit of the blitzkrieg bop, my hey, ho, let's go, my left field pyramid, my unsigned shoegazing runt of the recycled litter, my passion for the gung-ho, the flag bearer on my aching shoulders, my Dolores, my Amy, my glorious blast of crazy. She was my normality, my nights in white satin sheets, pre-washed and pre-conditioned, my electric landlady on respectable street, Kirsty McCall reference there, my interest accruing ISA, my wine and cheese with influences, my buffer and my safety network, my hey-ho, hey-ho, and off to work we go. My northern rock in a Panama haven, my safe option. Now, I listen without prejudice to our mutually bland and anodyne playlist, spiced up on shuffle mode, stifle my lion's roar, yielding to a life secure while pining for one last encore. Great, great stuff, that. I like the fact about the encore at the end of it then. So, well, yeah. There's a brief reference in there to Dolores, which is Dolores O'Reilly of um, the Cranberries, and I've actually dedicated my third book uh, oh, to, Dolores, oh. yeah, to Dolores. I was a huge Cranberries fan and heartbroken yeah. when she passed away. Oh, so. yeah, it was terrible, yeah. that was. Cause I, saw them, I saw them on the first two, two, two albums, actually, and I kind of lost track after that, really. But, and if you listen to the very last album, which is called In the End, it 
absolutely heartbreaking. She'd actually recorded the vocal and then they put the music on afterwards, but there's so many songs about, you know, facing death and loneliness well, and things well, like she'd that. Had, so. She'd had, was it cancer, was it, Kildra? Yeah. And yeah. it seemed, of course, I know she was really ill during, during, the, during the last album. They, they yeah. knew it was the last album, didn't they? So. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it was just about, she put the vocals down and they did it retrospectively, but you can get all five albums on Amazon for Beatles now and recommend it. But anyway, so <laughs> speaking of music and Irish music, uh, I was talking earlier about The Undertone Show. And um, when I read Mickey Bradley's biography, he's the bass player of The Undertones. It was actually called My Life as an Undertone. And when I thought about the title, and I actually used this poem as part of my Undertone Show, if you say my life is undertone with a capital U, then there's basically six people who've lived their life as an undertone, which is Fergal Sharkey, the youth singer Paul McLoon, the O'Neill brothers, Billy Doherty and Mickey Bradley. But I said in the show, if you spell undertone with a small u, everybody in the audience has lived their life as an undertone. We all live our lives as an undertone in the sense that, you know, we try to make the best of life that we can and we all make our own little impact on the world sort of thing. So once I had that idea, I ended up writing this poem, my life is an undertone. I've told you a little bit about my life here, so hopefully some of this will make sense. A teenage dream so hard to beat, when I just stayed put on Easy Street, wrapped in a cotton wool comfort zone, I lived my life as an undertone. I wrote a few gags, some laughs, some groans. It was a game of chance, not a game of thrones. With all the romance of a Toblerone, I lived my life as an undertone. I got into teaching a roundabout way because I had loads of bills to pay. Hip hip hooray for the holidays. But it was moans and groans from teenage clones all fiddling with their mobile phones. I lived my life as an undertone. I raised two sons, often alone, patching up our broken home to make the misplaced pieces fit. I never got the full picture, but I kind of got the gist of it. I think I made a half-decent fist of it. I couldn't be prouder of how they've grown. To some, I'm much louder than undertone. We can't all win an Olympic gold, a Nobel Prize or an OBE, but we're all destined to grow a little bit older a little bit wiser, a little bit free. So just battle through the collateral damage, become the version of you that's the best you can manage. Do nobody harm, do a little bit of good. Be proud of who you are, be proud of your blood, your battle scars, your lovely bones. Be proud you lived your life as an undertone. A teenage dream so hard to beat. A teenage dreams so hard to beat. And when I did that in the live show, the singer-songwriter Steve O'Donoghue came straight in with Teenage Kicks and everybody <laughs> stood up and started dancing and singing too. It was an absolutely wonderful oh, moment. brilliant yeah. stuff, mate. I'll yeah. do another comedy one. I was talking about the, the title track of my latest book, if you like. Uh, Vladimir Putin is in my kettle and oh, the story yeah. behind it. So oh, please, yeah, please. It's a bit of a light-hearted one after two serious ones. Vladimir Putin is in my kettle. The Russians are coming. They're pushing and shoving as I'm plumping my cushions while something keeps buzzing. There's a bug in my rug and a drone in my cupboard. My taps have been tapped, all my secrets are scuppered. My houseplants have implants with rooters for petals. And Vladimir Putin is in my kettle. There's a spy in my shed who's trying to spot me. Reds under my bed are driving me potty. A tracking device has been stashed in my ice pack. There's miniature mics disguised as a spice rack. The Russians are cumin. The Russians are cumin. Sorry. My mobile is speaking, my teaspoons are trembling, my radiator's leaking direct to the Kremlin. My laptop's rebooting, my SETI won't settle, and Vladimir Putin is in my kettle. The cream for my cold sore is laced with hallucinogens, it's just like the Cold War all over again. My toothpaste are lighting in a dissident trickle, my pet dogs are fighting like hammer and sickle. My coffee, I'm certain, tastes suspiciously sugary, and my iron curtains are twitching like buggery. My radio's a radar with antennas on it, uh, and my goggle box is a two-way monitor. My toothpicks are shooting tiny arrows of metal, 
and Vladimir Putin <laughs> is in my kettle. Lenin's in the living room, Stalin's in the attic, the Stasi are in the Kazi with their semi-automatics, the KGB's in the airing cupboard, fiddling the thermostatic. Don't go in the kitchen or you'll meet old Andropov and Boris Yeltsin sinking cocktails laced with Molotov. Trotsky's hatching Plotsky's to try to win back power. Engels is in the lobby, Karl Marx is in the shower. Gorbachev's in the crescent looking for communist fault lines. There's a million Russian peasants in my cellar's Siberian salt mines. Randy Rasputin is in fine fettle, but there's no disputing the face in the metal. Vladimir Putin is in my kettle. <laughs> Shall I finish on the one about my two sons? Yes, please. So this is five more minutes. This is for Naz and Jamal. Yes, please. When you were ragged around unvarnished edges, I wiped away your anxiety, harvested wheat from anchor-heavy chaff. And in return, you inspired me to laugh and laugh and laugh. As daylight dimmed to dusk, as limelight reached its limits, you asked for just five more minutes to scrape bare knees, to shoot the breeze like Ferguson pressuring referees, your laughter undiminished. And who could refuse the offer as you proffered such a pretty please? So I said, OK, what's five more minutes anyway? How soon you grow to glow like sunlight, memories and photos become edited highlights. In a world so strange and new to you, those growing pains, I felt them too. I cling to your childhood with knuckles white as hair grows thinnish and fades to grey. What's five more minutes anyway? And as you grew and blossomed, as you flew on gossamer wings to independent happenings, with voices confident and loud to make your mark, to make me proud, to have your, wrist, to have your fill of life's rich tapas bar, my satellites, my shooting stars, the only thing I've got right so far. I knew I was blessed. I kept the twig strong on the empty nest and secretly longed to see you in it, held in kiss for just five more minutes. Though the sands of time are a strict taskmaster, passing by forever faster, our journey yet remains unfinished. The flames of friendship undiminished, our bonds as strong as Popeye on spinach. <laughs> and as long as home is where the heart is, as long as we go to all tomorrow's parties and click three pints of foaming Guinness, I know I'll be okay. What's five more minutes anyway? Left fatherless in my mid-teens, I long to fulfil one modest dream, to see you flourish, nurtured, nourished, settled and secure, ensuring your mission, happy to the core and self-sufficient, with the hearts of lions but the eyes of a cynic. And selfish though it seems for me to say, when I see you both safe in a life worth living, I'd like to stay beyond that limit, before I go my weary way. Sorry, it always makes me cry this bit. Aww. Before I go my weary way. Well, what's five more minutes anyway? <laughs> Excellent. I'll, I'll have to stop at that point. <laughs> yeah, that's fine, Tony. Brilliant yeah. stuff, mate. Well, thank you again today. It's been a pleasure, oh, it's mate. Pleasure it took to us it. about four years to get this one in plan. I know we've been speaking yes. for a while over this. And it's a privilege to have you in my classroom. At least I'll know there was two intelligent people here this year. Might have a mandra scratch your eyes out. <laughs> well, thank you again, guys. It's been a great fun today. This is Andy N. So Andy I can never read that one without cracking up. It's just a bit of the end. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate.